welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast. A bunch of friends get together and talk about movies. This uh, month we are talking about our favorite movies that we actually introduced in our first episode uh, a long, long year ago. <laughs> uh, before we get into this week's movie, want to open it up, see how everyone's doing, see if folks have seen anything good, TV, movie. I saw probably one of the most surprising trailers. films of the year, uh, oh. Ready or Not. With Samara Weaving uh, from the Babysitter, Sam's horror film from last year. Um, I the fir- I did not think the first trailer was that great. It kind of felt like a, what I call a "fuck you, it's January" movie. Like <laughs> when you just released the worst garbage Classic. possible. Like Escape Room <laughs> came out. I don't know, heard it was bad, but then the second trailer for Ready or Not came out, and it was pretty interesting. And then I saw the movie with some friends, and it was absolutely spectacular. Um, Samara Weaving just kills it. Uh, Adam Brody is also in it. Does a really great job. She's in a movie with Steven Ewan that's on Shudder 2 that I want to watch. I feel like she might be, like, like my new, like, favorite, like, horror actor. She is wonderful. I'm so happy that I watched The Babysitter Mm -hmm. because she was, I mean, she, like, carried the movie. I mean, the movie was really nice in other ways, but she is just such a wonderful performer. Mm Mm-hmm. If you whenever if you still want to see in theaters or whenever it comes on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, I definitely recommend checking out Ready or Not. You won't be disappointed. Yeah. Anyone else? Um, Garrett and I are in the middle of uh, Nosferatu right now, uh, which um, I really love that book by Joe Hill. Um, I read it last year, and it's like definitely like one of one of my favorite um, horror books that I've read recently. Um, and the show is very different. And I also realized that like I don't love the way it looks, but um, it's pretty different from the book. But like pretty good and like interesting to watch um garrett hasn't read the book so it's like interesting to like watch it with someone who hasn't read it because i just want to immediately be like well in the book this happens and i'm like trying to like push all be of that, that person down and just be like all right i gotta shut up and just try to enjoy this but um it also like takes place like mainly in massachusetts there's a lot of like boston accents in it um they talk about grinders, and I was like, that's not accurate. And that made me upset, and I keep thinking about it. But Like, a grinder <laughs> doesn't exist in Boston? They're just, we just eat subs. Yeah. It's just subs. Oh. Where's all the subs? Ugh. Um, listen, you are my friend when it comes to the Italian ice thing. I know, Don't I know. fucking I know. lose me on the subs. Well, sorry. All right? Alliance I'm is sorry. broken right here, right now. You guys are Big here. Blowout. You should support me. <laughs> you have my support with the Italian ice. Fine. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I have had almost no time. I'm, I can't even believe I found time to watch your movie, Christine. But a movie that's on my list is We Have Always Lived in a Castle. It's on Netflix starring um, Sebastian Stan. And what a gorgeous man. It's on Netflix? Yeah. I love that book. And he, like, he's such a good dude. A good, decent dude. And you know how sometimes you see actors who you're like, yeah, you're hot, you're, you're attractive now, but like, put you in a time period and like you really fit that and so i think that this movie takes place in like the 40s or 50s and i'm like yeah that's exactly it that's a shirley jackson book i want to say oh is shirley jackson the same woman who wrote the she wrote haunting of hill house yeah. haunting hill and house. the lottery um i read that book last year i have it it's very good um and i wasn't sure if that was like a movie being released in theaters or not but i saw I'm the trailer sure a while ago Netflix. sweet cool. we've always lived in the castle yeah i cool. really really wanna it's on my list 
Yeah, that's Shirley Jackson. Oh, cool. Yeah. I have two days off this mm-hmm. week, so I'm like, <laughs> yeah. let me know how it is because I really oh, want to watch it. Anyone else? Uh, I watched uh, Late Night and really enjoyed it. Yeah? Yeah. Um, I don't know if anyone... It's the comedy with Emma Thompson and Mindy Kaling. Oh, oh it yeah. looked good. It's great. I would I would recommend it. It was a really fun watch. Um, I'd say it, like, it's it's very funny and it's it's fast paced and it's just it's very uh it moves quickly uh and it's great ha- got some really wonderful performances mindy kaling is such a pleasure to watch and emma thompson thompson is great it paints i would say with broad strokes um and i think wonderfully uh nails it so that's my that's my rec for the week and so let's dive into uh, this week's pick, which is uh, 1982 Blade Runner uh, by director Ridley Scott. Uh, it definitely is one of my favorite movies. It's always so interesting to bring a movie to butter with that uh, because I feel like it kind of opens up movies for conversation. I think there's a very sort of vulnerable feeling of like opening up a beloved movie and being like so what do you guys think it's also about like a rewatch i mean i've seen this movie many times but a rewatching with the intention of talking about it also is a really interesting process so i'll be very excited to hear what you all think um before we kind of get into our collective negative reviews just a quick overview of the movie it's such a interesting coincidence that Blade Runner is a pairing with The Thing we talked about last week. Mm -hmm. It was released on not only the exact same year, but on the same day. Uh, And so towards the end of this episode, I'll be so excited to also talk about at least what I saw is some thematic threads uh, that cross the, these two movies. Your movie also got mm-hmm. fucked by E.T., the extraterrestrial. Fucked yeah. by E.T. <laughs> Although when I looked up what fucked over Blade Runner was the thing came up that was like other movies that were coming out were the thing. Yeah. So we were all kind of in the same pack trying to compete for the American dollar. Mm. But that was left over and it when all E.T. just, went just like <laughs> stole. Just went to shit. <laughs> Um, Can that be our new reoccurring segment? What got fucked by E.T.? <laughs> no! Not like that! Although, there is True. stuff like that out there. I mean, it's yeah, the yeah, rule. It's, it's the internet. interesting place. Oh, golly. Yeah. Well, maybe E.T. makes a little pop-up appearance in Blade Runner. Who knows? But, um, so this, this movie uh, is set in November of 2019. Uh, and Ooh, here we are. Coming up. Coming up on November 2019, in a very grim Los Angeles, uh, Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, is a former police officer brought back into the force as a Blade Runner. Um, no, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. he, he is a Blade Runner. Was as a policeman, he which was... is someone specifically tasked with hunting down replicants. Okay. And then is brought back well, as that. The, okay. The main point is that he was supposedly retired, and then he was brought back into the force. Yes. Uh, and to retire or kill a series of replicants. They are bioengineered robots who are essentially enslaved for their labor on other planets of who escaped to Earth. Uh, While Deckard searches for the six replicants, Batty, the leader of the rebel replicants, searches for Tyrell, the head of a corporation that made him to demand an extension to his four-year lifespan. So that kind of gives you an overview of the plot. Uh, We are going to open it up to... 
the most negative reviews that we were able to find on the World Wide Web. Anyone got one off the top of their head? I do. And Christine, I'm so sorry, but this negative review is mine. <gasps> <gasps> I hated this twist. movie so much. Wow. I'm so sorry. No, no, this okay, is what okay. I think is like the wonderful essence of this podcast is like opening up for discussion. And I, I'm really eager to hear. Yes, I'm yeah. very eager to hear I, your thoughts. As every minute that went by, I... <laughs> hated it more and more and then felt guilty that I hated your favorite movie so it was just like a lot coming for me but it was just like you've entered into the Sam hates things part of the podcast here's here's what I will say maybe we'll talk more about it is I am not someone who likes science fiction and so I I've realized that now after watching this movie I went all right that I don't like it so that's that's why what? But there's so much. There's so much sci-fi involved in Marvel. <laughs> Talk to me about all the sci-fi one-related ones that I like. Uh, okay. I will say None. also that there are there were there are it still exists so many um, critiques of this movie, um, and I would say that do not let Blade Runner speak on behalf of science fiction maybe give it some other options because this is definitely uh i would say a very slow take on... no no to to be fair this has been a long time coming i see i see i see and i was so desperate to not hate this movie that i actually googled why do people like blade runner i genuinely googled that so um i didn't get a good answer so i'm i'm so looking forward to hearing everything we'll see this okay. is what again is so great because i'm um I, I think that you all you always have such wonderful, interesting takes on movies that I am so curious to hear what specifically you were just like, this movie, because I think that's definitely uh, an interesting kind of way to evaluate this movie. Should we go for some other just <laughs> negative reviews? <laughs> I love how you brought that into the conversation. No, this was, no, see, things are just it. twisting and turning. I love it. I love it. I love it. I mean, it was it was bound to happen, right? With it was bound to happen with one of ours, you Next know. Next week, I am I'm dreading Wait, two weeks from which now. Which would be you? With you. It's gonna be which would you rather watch? Um, Meek's Wait, cut off. Oh, oh my god! god. I don't want to spoil it because it wasn't revealed in the first episode, so we'll get to it. Okay. Don't make me answer that, Christine. Oh, I won't. Great. I won't. Love it. I'm there. Did you answer the Meek's cut off or the Blade Runner? <laughs> Do I want death? Do I want death? I like can't <laughs> I can't uh. answer. I have no answer. <laughs> At least something happens in Blade Runner. Well, I think that ties in really nicely with my negative review that I found. That got me. Oh, oh goodness, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, what's another? What's another? <laughs> um, it's called Seriously 8.3. The name? I don't know. It's one star out of ten. This is on IMDb. Oh, what wow. a waste of time. Two hours two hours, however long of my life wasted. Two hours, exactly. Um, so you're I watched the director's cut and boy is it boring. Easily the most boring film I've seen since Avatar. I personally love yeah. sci fi films, whether it be Star Wars or Alien. My favorite book of all time is Ender's Game. 
Don't have to prove anything. (laughs) (laughs) The film moves so slowly that I could feel my hair grow faster. (laughs) There are literally five things that happen in the movie. Four more than Meek's cut off. (laughs) Does it say that in the review? Is this Sam's review? (laughs) Because I, too, watched the director's cut. Um, And then it just goes on from there. People read way too much into the movie. It's a lot of poppycock. That's him. Poppycock. I believe that's a bunch a of hogwash and horse hockey. <laughs> uh, when the original cut was released, nobody went to see it. The original cut was given a commentary for a reason. The film was too long, boring, and doesn't make much sense. The commentary helped the film so much, it gave it a story and stops the watcher from having to make up some random story. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Harrison Ford's overlay doesn't exist in the original? There was like an original cut that was about four hours long, and they, they decided it was essentially incomprehensible, so they had to they had to sew that in as a narrative device. Sim's face right now. <laughs> if what? only you could see. Okay. Continue. So that was... My eyes are watering something. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's a review, a all right. Yeah. Well, um, uh, I, I have one from uh, Amy Nicholson from IE Weekly. Um, who did not like this film. Uh, the, the like, quick, like, like, line she has is, Paradoxically, Scott's crowded, misty, neon streetscape seems even murkier. Fuzz, I chalked up to VHS tapes in production designer... Ugh. Is production designer Lawrence G. Paul dumping ashtrays in the air? <laughs> <laughs> this was just so many words. Yeah. I was like... What the fuck is happening here? Like, I mean, she isn't far off. Yeah. Apparently, during uh, like when they were still casting the movie, they had various actors come mm-hmm. in and and film particular scenes. And that uh, in the making of documentary, this one woman was like, "Yeah, I was auditioning and I was like coughing through my entire screen <laughs> test because it was fucking filled with smoke." Man, so it was probably filled with ash. That's interesting. And that was from two thousand eight, so it was a recent one too. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So, yeah, I mean, this is definitely, uh, I was also say reading about this movie, you come across a wide variety of different movie or different takes on, on the movie. Um, I have kind of some different themes or topics I would love to explore, open it up to, but first who's first time okay so this was sam's first time seeing yep. this who it didn't else go so great had <laughs> never seen blade runner before i saw it probably like over 10 years ago so it's been a really long time upon recently rewatching, what were your what were your impressions probably one of the most impressive movies i've ever seen in terms of set design which i know we're going to probably talk a lot about um and i know christine the other day we were talking about how if Star Wars is like operatic science fiction of like heightened emotions, epic scales, um, Blade Runner is like a slice of life science fiction of like you're just following this one dude in his day in this lived in world as he just goes about his business trying to get the job done. Um, so it's very quaint. That's like a way to describe like yeah, it just or like feels quotidian experience, right. like day to day. What is this life like for Rick, Rick Deckard? Um, I love the phrase you use slice of life. And I think it also um, it really connects to what I think is one of the strongest elements of this movie. And it is 
the visual detail. Uh, and uh, Ridley Scott began his career essentially like as an art director. And he, if you see the storyboard drawings that he produces, he's an amazing illustrator um, and a really beautiful renderer. And so part of what to me makes this movie so visually stunning is and was his attention to detail. And there's a phrase that um, that's mentioned in the making of where uh, one of the writers, uh, Hampton Fancher, says that when he was talking to Ridley Scott, Ridley was always like, tell me what's outside the window. I don't want to only know what's going on inside the like a room where a scene is taking place, but I always want to be concerned with this world and what is going on outside the window. And I think that that is what that vision is what makes, some would argue, an overcrowded movie with sets and, and maybe an overemphasis on design, but to me makes this like movie have such a visual splendor. Uh, and also made the set a very hard place to work. And I know that we were talking in the thing about how the focus on practical effects, the mm -hmm. focus on sets can make a very stressful process, <laughs> um, but ultimately, can make the movie really, really stand out in a way um, that's that's super unique. But um, yeah, I think that that layering technique uh, that that Scott uses of of basically shots not only within a room but also the light pouring in in particular mm -hmm. scenes that give it kind of that uh, not only overcrowded dystopian futuristic LA look, but also takes you back to kind of a 40s, 50s noir film mm. as well. That's that's a lot of what I rediscovered watching it again. I hadn't seen it in a couple of years um, and coming back to it again uh, for the for, for the purpose of talking about it, I, I really kind of noticed a lot of things. Specifically, yeah, the use of light and contrast. Um, specifically, the use of light from, as you're mentioning, from outside of a space to illuminate the space to create a sense of like atmosphere from beyond the scene. Um, just how it taps into so many classic like 1930s and 40s noir techniques of like light coming through shades um, just the acuity to that as like a, a means of like framing a noir story within like a hypothetical future backdrop I think is handled cinematically perfectly in the movie which like I think that's interesting too because when I think about Blade Runner like I know it's a sci-fi movie, but like I always just think about it in its like noir aspect. Like, like that's a detective the thing. Film. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing that like really sticks out to me because like noirs, no matter like what kind I've seen, like just have like such a distinct feel to them. And like even like reading them a lot when I was like younger and stuff. Like um, my one year with Garrett is coming up soon, and our first date we watched oh, Brick, uh, which I had never seen before uh, with like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It's a doozy. Um, but like even that, where it's like a modern like high school or noir movie, yeah. it was like it's like so interesting and like distinctive. Um, so I'm like excited to talk more about like so we already had a really interesting conversation <laughs> about Blade Runner that I realized we should have saved for the podcast now, but. I'm excited to talk more about it i mean we can definitely bring yeah. it up i mean um also not only kind of the noir elements but also looking at uh different like graphic artists and graphic novels influence on the the, the color palette and the mm. visuals um so the artist mobius was apparently a very influential uh for like force as far as uh futuristic visions uh that kind of 
the, the pinks, the greens, the, um, the blues, that kind of color palette where you look in this Los Angeles street scene and you have these beautiful neon lights that are shining as Deckard is making his way through this grimy, trashy street. Um, and yeah, it's just uh, like to me, uh, and, and all the textures on the sides of the buildings uh, they used this huge studio lot uh, in, the, in the Warner Brothers studio to 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 build a lot of the the exterior houses or exterior buildings and street scenes, um, and they built these giant tubes on the outsides of pre-existing uh, kind of building facades to create uh, all of these cool, uh, very kind of intestinal tube-looking uh, uh, mm. buildings and houses and things like that. Which sort of makes sense because it, it feels like, I mean, you know, obviously this is 1982's interpretation of 2019. And but here like, we are, yeah. <laughs> and here we are. But, like, it does it does have, like, a lot of the hallmarks of the things that we still see, like the, the street signs, like the kind of, like, um, the building structures. They're just kind of enhanced slightly. So I think it, largely speaking, I mean, there's, like, of course, that big, like, giant like pyramids in the city the tyrell corporation and stuff but like outside of that it's pretty convincingly like blends into the backdrop of like established architecture but enhanced in a way that makes it theoretically like conceivable yeah um and for some of the aerial views of the street they actually just used a bunch of stuff that was uh, like at hand within the studio apparently in one frame in the early part of the movie in the left corner you can see um, a miniature of the Millennium Falcon <laughs> just like chilling as <laughs> to take up space um, it definitely looked like really Scott went to his grandma's attic and was like alright we need everything possible and we're gonna fit this within this like two block space and then shoot it and Daryl Hannah like first is introduced oh yes Chris. and she did right and she just like fucking wanders into an alley under so much newspaper garbage and she says I'm gonna sleep here yeah and it's just like would it really have that much maybe it would have that much trash but I was mm. like that's Un unbelievable. Well, a big theme. So this movie is based on Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And a mm -hmm. theme of that uh, novel is e like uh, essentially environmental destruction and what ha what will happen to the earth uh, if humans don't take care of it. And at oh, this we know. Point, we, yeah, know. We, we basically know. You got so, that right about 2019. So <laughs> in that vision, trash would be essentially people have left earth uh, and a lot of the most populated cities on Earth are basically like trash heaps uh, mm. because people that can afford it have essentially left. Yeah, it's um, largely like the rich and upper classes who have like ascended to off world as it's in the, yes, in yes. the novel, as far as I'm aware, kind of reminds me of the movie Dread um, that we talked about in our very first episode where it's like mega city. Like it's there's huge urban centers and there's yeah. wasteland. It's and it's like deeply overcrowded and right. stuff. Has yeah. anyone read the book? I know Philip K. I Dick haven't. is like a doozy to try to read, but he's tough. I was supposed to read it for a freshman year class. So just like what movies have we lied about seeing? This is a book I lied <laughs> about reading to my teacher. I did read parts of it, um, and I now can they fail you after the fact? Like yes. are you revealing some? I am, they're yeah. gonna yoink back take, your degree. Take my theater degree away. <laughs> One thing that's interesting too is that Philip K. Dick actually remarked uh, after seeing Harrison Ford embody uh, Rick Deckard uh, while filming on set, he declared, uh, quote, uh, he has been more Deckard than I imagined. It is incredible Deckard exists. 
Especially the tagline of the movie. That's a good thing. I think he also watched only, or he was only able to see like the first twenty minutes of the movie. That might be right. Around the time that it was finishing production. But speaking of uh, other actors who could have played the lead. Nick Nolte was mentioned in The Thing as possibly oh, no. playing McReady. <laughs> he was also apparently a proposal God, everyone for wanted Deckard. Nolte. Are you a replicant? <laughs> Tell me if you're a replicant! <laughs> also on that list was Dustin Hoffman. He was the number huh. two pick That's for right, I did read that. Um, that would have been Deckard. such an interesting choice. I, I could have worked. S- yeah. You don't think? No, I don't think so. I'd be He's a little to too watch soft. It. It's too soft around the edges. Well, I did think that's work? what was kind of compelling about... <laughs> I feel like usually Harrison make like plays the grumpy old man, but in sure. this movie, I think there is a softness oh, to yeah. his character. But with Hoffman, it would have been like all give. It would have been too soft. Too soft. <laughs> would have been like soft sort. But it'd be interesting to see <laughs> if he could like nice play it a little differently. You know, like it'd be interesting to see him try to like do that. I think Ford brings a perfect like, like very apropos like noir energy to the character, mm-hmm. though, as like a like classic noir detective in a different different uh, backdrop i mean he is he has always been a grumpy old man from from what i can tell <laughs> and the haircut my gosh oh so bad his hair oh, I, I love it i think his it ha- looks wonderful <laughs> oh it's <laughs> uh, apparently ridley hated uh uh harris like, haircut but he cut it so that he wouldn't have to wear a hat in the movie because it was yeah. uh, it was i mean it would have he had just come off filming right indiana of, jones yeah. uh and so you I, don't want to be known as the hat i guy. fucking hate <laughs> right. hat stuff so i'm in the middle of the expanse and there's a character in the middle of the, of the or at the beginning of the series uh who it's uh, he's also supposed to be kind of like a detective a la noir theme and he's got this fucking stupid ass hat and once he takes the hat off which is a pivotal turn in the show okay things just totally transform christine this is such an interesting thing to have like a really like deep opinion on i want you to talk about all That's your hat opinions hats. from now on when we when we watch films i sh- i I, I will be happy to do that. I'm yeah. sorry we didn't bring up the hat in the thing, um, McReady's hat, but like, it was funny. So like, their uh, spirit Halloween opened up like right by us, uh-huh. and so we found it while we were going to the grocery store. And we're like, ah, fuck it, let's go to Spirit Halloween. Um, and we were like talking about the costumes we could do, and Garrett was like, maybe I could do McReady. And then like later on that night, I got a text from Sam that was just like, man, Kurt Russell is really hot in the thing, and I was just like, yeah, <laughs> that hat with the crop top. <laughs> oh my god. It took him a year to do that beard. <laughs> but yes, epic, epic hat that works. So. Well, yeah. I'm glad that uh, he didn't have a hat because yeah. I, I, I liked his haircut. Uh, other things as far as uh, visuals, uh, the costume design. I love oh, the wardrobe. Um, the wardrobe, uh, all of. So there's a uh, character, Rachel, who is. Um, she is a replicant. She works for Tyrell Corporation, and um, she essentially, re- for the course of the movie, she discovers that, or she sort of like realizes she's a replicant. She thinks she's a human, and then she and um, Deckard run away together. But their her outfits apparently were modeled off Mildred Pierce, which I have never seen. But it's like an early Joan Crawford movie with these huge shoulders, mm. these uh, kind of bow tie and like uh kind of like a very angular designs and she's got her hair all in the front mm-hmm. and i think it's just such a like an amazing 
costume or like uh, outfit inspiration and decorated shirts are great and striped anyhow i love i love Sam, her. how did you feel about her look i oh. feel like that's yeah. like a, a yeah i was like that's a very you aesthetic so Sam okay, gave cool. the a-okay look yeah i liked yeah. it rachel was my favorite character she's the best character in yeah. there yeah. so i was like yeah mm-hmm. um yeah, it, she just looks absolutely that beautiful hair. through Ooh, the whole beautiful. movie. Oh, when she lets down her oh, hair right curls. in front of the piano, and then she just so tenderly like, like touches her. Cur- mm, it's so beautiful. Um, I, I just side note, Sean Young. Apparently, there was a lot of like questions of, sh- of whether she'd be able to handle the role, and all. Even in the making of documentary, there's just some icky, icky uh, commentary from both Ridley Scott. Uh, and like the writers, they're like, we didn't think she could do it. She might have been too young. Like, all this bullshit. I think her her performance is wonderful. It like uh, she gives this wonderful sensitivity to to this character that's realizing she's a replicant. Anyhow, that's. A I wish she note. had more to do. Yeah. Yeah. Her character film. could have definitely been uh, fleshed out and written. And I would love to touch a little bit on kind of de- depictions of female characters in this movie in a moment. But paired with visuals is sound. Another thing I love about Blade Runner is the Vangelist soundtrack, which mm-hmm. I read reviews of when the movie first came out and there's scathing reviews of Angelus's sound uh soundtrack they're saying it's overwhelming it reminded me of reviews of Hans Zimmer soundtracks too booming over the top takes over scenes I'm a sucker for Hans Zimmer so that's fine with me he did a league of their own and so did he really yeah It also just kind of lends to the, like the like this sonically it's representative of like the visual scope and grandeur of what we're seeing like when we're seeing like a zoom in on Tyrell Corp it's just these sort of like booming like almost like synth trumpets that just like usher this in as like this such grand structure and yeah I think it accentuates most mm. of the scene work perfectly which I think balances Connor's mention of like we a lot of times it's more slice of life we're in this sort of intimate space with Deckard and the other characters but then there are these scenes of grandeur where those synths really create the sense of expanse um, and then there are these moments of delicate textures, these piano lines. There's a one, one of my favorite scenes, which is pretty insignificant but wonderful, when you're in the middle of the street and these cyclists are coming f- towards the camera and peeling off. And there's just this beautiful piano part that I think adds to the, uh, sonically to the intricacy of, uh, of each scene and all the detail. Um, but... We were talking a little about Rachel. We can move on to questions that I would love to open up to the... I was about to say to the crew, to the group, um, about what do you... What do you think of the... the female roles uh, within this this movie? Um, They're pretty much all replicants, Mm -hmm. uh, except for the woman that identifies the uh, boa scale... um, for Deckard mm. in a particular scene. Uh, yeah, what do you guys think? I mean, we had an interesting conversation about this in general, where it was like, what does this mean about this world? And also this like movie where like replicants are the only, like women are only portrayed like as replicants. So it's, I don't know, like what it, what does that like mean? And then we talked about 2049 too, and how like, that kind of like you don't like have too too many like human women in that either so like continuing on with that like what does this like mean within this world and everything well Um, 
I mean, I guess it depends because we're we're under the understanding that replicants coming to Earth is punishable by death unless they are created by the Tyrell Corporation like Rachel. So I imagine that most of the women that we see in the crowded street shots of this movie are not replicants. But, I mean, the women with roles in well, the film. Well, sure, of course, <laughs> yeah. of course. But, like, as far as, like, the yeah. sci-fi world and framing it, like, yeah. most of the women we see on screen, even though they don't play active roles, are, are humans. Although, yeah, the roles... That yeah. speaking roles are handed over to like that's, characters, and that's impactful to oh, see sure, that. Yeah. So yeah, like in for recent films, I it makes me think of uh, Ex Machina a mm-hmm. bit. Also, um, just like human men interacting with these like robot women, these um, objects. Yeah, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is especially like uh, it's been like I said, it's been a long time since I've seen this movie. That apartment sequence is horrifying. It is. It is like rewatch after rewatch. Like the more I see it, the more I'm like, that is an unforgivable scene. So what we're talking about is what's supposed to be the love scene in this movie as Deckard and Rachel meet each other. And you're like, oh, you know, is there tension? All of this stuff. And they're in an apartment together. Vangelis has this jazz soundtrack. Yeah, it's like suddenly there's this, my notes say apartment scene. Uh, equals sensual sax exclamation exactly <laughs> there is 80s sensual sax um and it begins as a as a promising pretty moving scene where they're sitting together at a piano she's now come to realize she's a replicant she calls out deckard asks him like you know you're all about exposing other people as replicants have you considered yourself like you know who are you um and this just beautiful shot and then it just it essentially turns into an assault scene yeah um with deckard pushing her against the wall uh like forcing her to to give these declarations of like kiss me i want you and it's just horrible it really truly is horrible and apparently that like so scott sean young uh ford have all said that that scene is the most they use the phrase like unsuccessful scene which is a terrible even word to assess yeah fuck (laughs) off that's a gross scene um but like well, apparently they like didn't have chemistry on scene and couldn't make the scene meant. work and then Harrison Ford got a, like essentially got aggressive on set uh, um, I've got notes about that yeah go yeah you want to take it away <laughs> yeah so I mean the apartment scene when Deckard stops Rachel from leaving his apartment um, he pushes her away from him um, the expression of pain and shock on her face was real Sean Young said that Harrison Ford had difficulties uh, playing out the scene with her and it pushed her too hard uh, and this is supposedly their their kind of justification for the whole thing and this is a uh, behind to be however um when he saw how angry she was with him he affection quote unquote affectionately mooned her to break the ice so this is an a, a perfect example of like film set accountability like yeah who is letting this happen it's ridley scott mm. and and what does he choose to use for his movie to con- to push this movie it's just it's it's a classic example of like an unsafe set, just complete, yeah, yeah, yeah. utter uh, disregard for for the safety of like people within within like a film. And set it, yeah, space. and it's like using that still with mm-hmm. all of that. Like, mm-hmm. I think the illusion is supposed to be that like this is yeah. Deckard's. 
there's probably I mean they have got probably got so a lot of explanations. I think the idea is that like it's supposed to illustrate that like and this is something that we learn of the replicants early on is that they're more empathetic toward um, individuals interactions than human beings at this point, um, despite their like robotic nature, just as like a weird mm-hmm. production defect. And it's supposed to illustrate uh, Deckard's disconnection to not only people but also replicants in his like disregard for her agency and instructing her as a machine to affirm his desires. But that's also really fucked up. It's yeah, <laughs> and so I think this also connects to questions I had in like movies even now, like Ex Machina and things like that. It's yeah. like, are these sort of commentaries and critiques of sort of the commodification and exploitation of female bodies in a in a AI world in a futuristic world or does it also play into like oh well we got to have this like sexy like character mm-hmm. who's being given instruction in this sex yeah. scene like like an ex machina i think it handles it way better than this movie mm-hmm. but there are some scenes that raises questions is like is this for just watching these other not um the main characters robot but there's some other female robots that are like doing like a like a strip scene and like all Mm -hmm. this stuff and it's like who is this for like what is this for exactly and in terms of like this movie too with like this stuff going on it's also like a noir film and like in a lot of noir films and books like women are also not treated very well and are hit or yeah like it's yeah there's like this like very like sexy like aspect to it but then also like a lot of like you know aggressive male characters kind of forcing themselves upon Mm. women and it's like i don't know it's like really it's really interesting when you have a sci-fi movie that's also very much like rooted in this like very specific time period mm-hmm. too, yeah. like the forties and fifties and stuff. And yeah, I, it, it makes me, I, I don't know what that yeah. means. It, I have no idea thing. what that I think, means. I think it's interesting yeah. watching Blade Runner in a post Westworld world. I think Westworld, as much as HBO is like problematic with representation of like women, especially like Game of Thrones and other bigger shows. I think in a lot of ways, Westworld is like, Hey, robots are people too in a lot of ways so it's just interesting of like what Blade Runner was setting up I feel like speaks really nicely with what Westworld um, with Dolores and Maeve is kind of like picking up this narrative so I don't really have like a final thought on that but yeah. I just think it's just well, interesting watching that show and really loving that show and how this is like communicating with Blade Runner I think that's a really good point I mean like for me that scene was the nail in the coffin for this movie I was like I didn't like it now and then I especially don't fucking like it now um, but There's also something else to be said about what you're speaking to, Connor, which is like, okay, so Rachel thought she was a human, and then for Decker to come in and be like, well, you're not, and this is impossible, that's not your fucking mom, and like, blah, 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 blah. Right, and it's like, is that okay? Like, that, like... That's, I, I felt like that wasn't okay, because then there's no support offered for this, um being essentially because like you know you can say they're robots but like you know if they're built with all this feeling and they're uh, they're humans essentially like you have to understand that Mm. these are beings like what westworld has done like how can you just be like well actually everything you know is fucking fake goodbye and tell me you want me like yeah like if your fucking therapist talked to you that way or something (laughs) like when you like if you think about it in the sense of just like 
being like a human and like someone talking to you that way or treating you that way like that's not fucking okay it's well, not yeah like that's also sort of one of the main like you know veins of this franchise is whether or not you know uh, these these beings we've created that have developed their own emotional sentience are in, intended to be subservient anymore because that's that's the whole pretense of their creation yeah and then after the fact it's sort of like I mean, it goes. It kind of goes back to the scene where, like, uh, too, where um, you know, Roy Batty is confronting uh, Tyrell and is like, um, you know, con- uh, this dissatisfied creation confronting and destroying its creator. It's got like a very Frankenstein vibe to it about mm-hmm. like its own sense of agency in the face of its creator's expectations and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I also think the the notion of uh, people characters undermining other characters sense of self is like yeah all throughout the movie i mean you have it with rachel uh so replicants have photographs that they carry with them because they're implanted memories as we mentioned and these photographs are these like these items of these these vestiges of a life like mm. a full life and yeah. memories and Rachel has them she shows she this beautiful one of my favorite scenes is when she's telling Deckard of this childhood memory she has mm-hmm. of um of a spider like seeing a spider egg uh explode and a bunch of small baby mm-hmm. spiders coming out and it's creepy but but beautiful and moving all at the same time um and so you can see that this discovery of like what people are telling her that she really is that's a huge like life altering Mm. realization but it still raises the question of does that make someone view themselves any less like like how is her sense of self changed and and that raises we're gonna we're gonna oh well i just think that that ties so so interestingly into the final monologue with with Roy Batty, where um, you know they're on the roof, um, he's you know his the end of his lifeline is approaching. As like we know, they only live four years, um, as like kind of a mechanical failsafe for the eventuality of their emotional self discovery, um, and as a way of kind of like coldly justifying like creating sentient beings, but like that are like unlimited in their power, yeah. but then nece- the necessity of killing them off, and how inhumane that is, and his disregard for like. When he when he's talking, and this apparently was something that uh, Rucker Howard was it Rucker Howard Rucker Howard yeah R I P yes oh he 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 improvised or ha- came up with that whole speech he cut down a longer speech yeah, right, that right. Fancher and Peoples the writers had written he was like oh mm, is that it this okay. is like too long which I would agree okay, any longer sense. and it would just be stupid but like the ethos being that like you know I've seen like battleships on fire on the shoulder of Orion and I've seen like these things and like these things that you as my human creator cannot even comprehend like I have as like something you've created to serve you like surpassed in my own individual humanity understanding that you could even comprehend that's such a good point I've never thought about that in contrast to implanted memory which humans perceive as full life it's like you had your childhood you grew up adolescence all this stuff but what Batty presents at the end is well I've witnessed so many things that you all never under your subjugation yeah Um, and then the use of time to die is such a wonderful echo of a previous use of time to die when uh, Leon another replicant is fighting Deckard and he's like in the fight scene like time to die like you're gonna die and then Roy Batty says time to die and he 
puts his head down and dies himself. But yeah, I never thought about that as kind of um, kind of juxtaposed understandings of what a life looks like and, and mm. is imagined as. Yeah, it just kind of begs the comparative question of just like if we are to create fully functional AI that is able to develop its own sentience and emotionality even with a limited lifespan, like, you know, what, what is the understood merit of that machine's experience versus our own? And those inherent questions being sewn into, especially that monologue, I think is fantastic. Mm. Yeah, um, and, and things, yeah, like uh, what we see created in other movies like her also comes to mind as far as sense of self and and as far as ai and things like that um yeah when we were thinking of another thing i kind of was thinking about as well uh and i think this article that was actually a review of 2049 uh really got me thinking about this notion was the fact that the movie's depiction of a 2019 Los Angeles, which is an extremely diverse city, uh, is, besides Gaff, played by Edward James Olmos, uh, is mm -hmm. primarily characters, white characters, uh, and that characters of color are essentially pushed to the margins of the story. Um, there are a lot of, like, uh, I don't know, there's a lot of Eastern cultures represented. Certainly, though. as far I sorry, focusing again, this notion of central character, like, characters oh, okay. that are given... Yeah, right, right, right. Lot, like lots of narr like lines and narrative. Um, it's again, the difference of quote unquote representation versus inclusion. Yeah. Exactly. Well, but specifically, like with a movie that so relies on the theme of enslavement and exploited labor. Um, and this writer, um, Shama Rangwala in Jacobin, asserts that the movie whitewashes this narrative by displacing U.S.'s history of slavery onto primarily white characters, who, uh, the white mm. replicants, centering mm. on their plight while marginalizing like characters of color um, and actually says that 14, 20, like 2049 had the option of like addressing this and like still didn't, really didn't get didn't it right. Um, I like that movie a lot, but yeah, it's got that problem in the same way this movie that's does. Interesting. Yeah. And that, that also just was something to be that I hadn't really thought really deeply about before in relation to this movie. But did you all have like, thoughts kind of a it's like a mo movie that because like baddie is like this yeah really white guy <laughs> that's yeah. like this is no, what it means I to think, be a slave i think that is a totally valid yeah. like that that's something that's like really like interesting to think about and that like at like when when you read that i was like oh i probably should have thought about that more yeah. like that is something that like is is pretty important to talk about and like you know i think that also like talks about where i am where i'm like a white woman and like i gravitate like impulse like the the woman stuff like really stands out to me but like i should probably be thinking more about like you're right they they do make it seem like it's this really like diverse like space where people are like speaking like a combination language of these like other languages which is so interesting right. but then it's all fucking white characters which, thank, all speaking english thank god for edward yeah. james almost because he demanded that ridley scott let him uh create uh like he called they called it city speak which was a mix yeah. of like hungarian really? japanese wow. so the scenes where deckard is at the noodle bar and gaff mm -hmm. gaff is the character who's like his su supervisor uh, yeah. in the police force and he comes up to him as basically we need you on this case get all the replicants and he speaks in this language that almost wrote himself and like That's went so cool. to a language school in la and was like That's this incredible. needs to be part of the scene and i think that is such a great like realization that language has transformed by this time 
But see, even that's a really interesting and and great point to talk about how white this movie is because so there's an exchange between Decker and the man who runs like the noodle bar and he's like I want four and the guys on like two and they they clearly have a language mm-hmm. communicate like sure. they're not on the same page but then when what's his name Gaff, Gaff yeah when Gaff comes over he has the noodle bar man translate what he's saying to the and it's like then the the Harrison Ford overlay is like I understood it the whole time and it's like that man who's working at the noodle bar, you and him just had a moment where you didn't understand each other, but now you expect him to translate for you? What the fuck? Mm. So did you watch the nar- voiceover narration version? Yeah. <gasps> okay, interesting. Oh. So this is a really important point. a lot point. of different versions of this movie. That is the theatrical version that came out in 82. And uh, Wait, which one? The, the one with voiceover the voiceover narration. Mm-hmm. Harrison Ford was like opposed to it from the beginning. I think Scott was like not behind it, but really it was producers being like, nobody's going to understand this movie. You need a voiceover narration. And that's like, again, a very noir thing where it's like the internal monologue of like the main character. You learn weird details about Decker's Uh life that he was married before all this thing. I know you probably don't want to revisit this movie, but (laughs) watching it without the voiceover is a far, far superior experience because I think it connects to what I love most about this movie is uh, the the feelings of unknowable. I don't know if unknowability is a word, but but unknowing, uh, not knowing what characters are thinking. at any given point and really having this sense of ambiguity, especially connected to the like theme of is someone human or are they not? And without having that internal monologue for a character like Deckard, whereas there is some intriguing ambiguity as to whether he's human and he is, or if he's like a replicant himself that I think removing like any thoughts that he's explicitly thinking gives a movie, the movie a whole different shape. Yeah. Again, no pressure, but <laughs> no, I probably won't do yeah, it. Yeah, that's but, fair. I'll probably um, watch that. It's interesting for me to hear that because this wasn't my biggest beef with the movie, but like something that really frustrates me is uh, a movie creator's distrust of their audience, and I think that goes in two ways. One way, and they think their audience is, is too stupid to understand what the movie's trying to do, and then oversimplify ev- <laughs> un- oversimplifies everything. And then on the opposite end of that, where it's like, well, I don't want anyone to guess what I'm doing, so I'm going to give them all these clues and then fucking change it like the Game of Thrones people. Mm. And like, there's like the show don't tell thing, like too, right. where it's just like. If you can show people things, you don't have to fu- like explain you don't it. Have to sp- yeah. Right. So like that's on the other end of the spectrum, and I think like both do such a disservice to the fans. And so it's interesting because like I thought it was on the spectrum of they think the fans are too fucking stupid, so that's why they have to telegraph literally every single thing. I was like, I get it. I know what the final fight is going to look like. I I, I get it. Mm-hmm. And that also makes sense why that's like the I guess like theatrical more like studio cut versus like what the director like would have wanted you so know the, yeah the process Hampton Fancher originally did think of a voiceover narration but actually Harrison Ford brought up that point Sam that why don't you take what's in the voiceover and actually incorporate it into more scenes so you can mm. show not tell and so he was like yeah let's go for it and then like higher ups were like we need a voiceover no one's gonna yeah. get it 
but the director's cut that came out in 92 and then the final cut which i think is a really beautiful version 2007 mm-hmm. that's what i've seen that's has the one no I voiceover narration and it also lets vangelis's soundtrack really also be kind of a voice through each mm. scene. And I could mm-hmm. see a reviewer being like, yo, this soundtrack's way too loud because you got Harrison's Ford fucking voice. You got the <laughs> booming synths here. It's just too cluttered, too much. And I really think upon revisiting, that's always Always synth. Mm-hmm. I think for me, this movie is incredibly successful as a tonal and thematic picture and not necessarily as a character-driven film. I would agree and I 100%. Feel like I, have yeah. not, I have not seen the version with the voiceover, but I feel like that tries to like cram in character-driven stuff, which is not what I'll Ridley's... Int- but I feel like that's what the studio was like trying to do, even though it was like horrible. Ford didn't want to do it. It sounds like Ridley Scott didn't want to do it, and I feel like he just wasn't interested in like what makes character A tick, and this action promotes this action. Structurally, he's like, let's just build a world, and I let's think- just... I think the argument could be made that Deckard, because he is the central focus of the film, takes away from uh, some of the other performances that are perhaps more important thematically. Like, I mean, Deckard is supposed to be kind of like a a vessel through which we Mm -hmm. experience this world versus the subject, which is replicants, which is why Roy Batty is a fascinating character. Uh, Yeah, and Rutger Hauer uh, really brought his own ideas to that character. He like talked through um, like what bad, how bad he would act, and and kind of the different uh, how he would weave through emotional states. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like you get this juxtaposition of human characters, and like you're like, okay, are they gonna like have varying emotional states? And I see sort of the replicant characters weave more seamlessly through a bunch of feelings of batty witnessing uh pris uh essentially his sister get murdered by deckard and he he weeps for her oh and the one thing that i wrote down is just like um that in that sequence where like um you know we have harrison ford who's like injured he's his fingers have been broken by uh, roy batty after the fact and he's like wailing in physical pain as he's resetting his fingers at the same time that roy batty is wailing like existentially mm. and emotionally and psychotically over the loss of another replicant. Mm. Uh, ooh, interesting. You're much maybe more aware of like the f- like physical makeup of Harrison Ford's body. You can hear his fingers crunch and like maybe almost machine-like and then Rutger Hauer is like, all of the people that I love in this world are dead. And just like the uh, the irony that the person tasked and with killing... And the emotional states. Yeah, and that this, yeah. this detective uh, whose job as a Blade Runner is to, to retire, which is killing replicants, um, is perhaps more detached on a human level just th- regarding their own physical concern for themselves yeah. versus like a replicant who is supposed to be this like shadow figure mm. of what humanity is weeping in pain and howling at the loss of another replicant while at the same time they're not physically in pain yeah where it's like i you know thinking about like noir stuff too it's like those leads are always these like just loner broken like humans that don't seem to be able to like connect or like attach Mm -hmm. to people in real ways and usually like you know there are like series of like a specific detective or something because like they weave in and out of people's lives and are never actually like fully attached like in that way and so like like and it's interesting too when you talk about like them like putting Deckard more into it and like that detracting from the other stories because yeah he should be more of like the background because really he's just like 
your gateway into like this particular like story. He's like a mad. He's a Ma- Max Rockatansky or something. Yeah. He's just the vessel through which you. Yeah. This world is framed. Where like Rucker Howard's character has such like depth and is like so interesting and. I mean, that's I. That's why I love, like, a lot of movies like this. Like, you mentioned her and Ex Machina and stuff like that. It's, like, more of, like, the intricacies of, like, what it's like dealing with, like, being a man-made, like, mm-hmm. character with, like, this, like, built-in humanity and soul. And I get... I, there, I was, like, helping teach a class on, like, technology and society for a mm. while, and it, like, totally fucked with my brain, because I was in this <laughs> state of being, like, what is the soul, man, you know? Like, and, and it was shit like this, where I was just, like, this is f- so fascinating and complex. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, there's a line that Rachel says at one point that's, um, oh, I'm not in the business, I, I am, am the, the business. business. Mm. Um which I think encapsulates this, like, notion of, like, awareness of, like, one's being being a part of this, like, like money-making venture, but that being an integral part of self and, like, that recognition being so beautiful. Two quick shout-outs I want to say. Joanna Cassidy's performance is Zora. Um, I thought, like, she's the the boa lady. Um, Also, shout-out to her. To refilm the scene, her her death scene through the snow and all that glass, Scott mm-hmm. didn't get any good shots of that happening. Uh, and actually, for the 2007 final cut, she got back into that mm-hmm. outfit and Whoa. did that fucking scene again. I was wow. like, "You are that's boss. Awesome. I love her." And she—that's her boa. She like was so natural with that snake because that was hers. I love that. And yeah. Other, I think one of my favorite scenes really quickly is the opening scene uh, with the replicant Leon. And it's an interrogation scene when they've realized that replicants are out on earth and need to be found. And that uh, Tyrell employees are all getting interviewed or interrogated to see whether they're human or replicant. And this is a wonderful example of weaving through emotional states for the purpose of manipulation uh, because you see this Voight-Kampff test, which is the emotions test, and Leon is, is like sweaty and nervous and kind of childlike when the questions are like, so imagine you're in the desert and you flip a tortoise on his which back. Which desert? And he's like, which desert? Where am I? What's a tortoise? All this stuff. And he, you, you see kind of this childlike fear as he's in this space. And then like suddenly he's like so now we're going to move on to your mother and he goes like let me tell you about my mother and he just stands up and shoots the interrogator and it's just he just switches so quickly and i thought it was just such a bang of an opening um Mm -hmm. for that movie so just two shout outs for wonderful performances in my view um yeah you guys have given me so much wonderful to think about like movies we love just Always kind of seeing new things, but also opening up for uh, interesting critiques and ways of looking. I just have two quick final thoughts I would like to to tie in with that. that, um, And this ties into our episode last week with The Thing. Um, Much like um, Carpenter regarding The Thing as his uh, his favorite project, Scott regards Blade Runner as uh, probably his most personal and complete film. also, Ridley Scott and uh, Jordan uh, Cronenweth um, achieved the famous Shining Eyes. That would be the ah, kind yes. of like the sort of like a retinal uh, reflection that that indicates that someone is or is not a replicant in the film. Um, 
by using a technique invented by Fritz Lang known as the uh, Chauffin oh. process, which is a light bounced into the actor's eyes off of a piece of half-mirrored glass mounted at a 45-degree angle to the camera. Um, that ties in really exactly with the thing That's as cool. far as yes. the thing we discussed the yeah. glint in the eyes that's an indication of whether or not one is human which I think is a, is a maintained a really interesting pairing of these two movies that they, they mm. happen to come out at the same time that uh, they both feature questions of whether or not one is what is humanity and whether or not the people we're dealing with are human and that being the key indicator in both films I think is fascinating and Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford to this day disagree as to whether Deckard yes. is a replicant. That's really great. Uh, Harrison Ford insists he's not. Scott is like, yeah, he is. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think that's I, just like a bit that they're doing? I don't know. <laughs> I, the thing is, is I love the unicorn scene. And there's uh, sort of the hints that Edward James, almost his character Gaff, puts um, origami figures in mm-hmm. front of all people that are replicants because he does a figure of what they say their memory is. So and he he's would kind know, of this omniscient memory. character that knows all. And he puts a little origami picture of, uh, or origami figure of a unicorn, which was a memory that um, Harrison had. Yeah. Also, one quick thing is that uh, Scott's brother had died of cancer recently mm-hmm. before he started filming this. And he was originally shooting Dune and was like, I don't have time to listen to all of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but that he was definitely um, reeling from the death of his brother and thinking about these no- these ideas of like mortality and sadness. And it is a extremely dark movie. Yeah. Um, so, all right, awesome. Thank you guys so much. I thought we <laughs> dove into some really interesting, interesting ideas. Um, and uh, we will be back with our whiteboard question. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. All right, and we're back with our whiteboard question. And this week's question is, what movie do you think best depicts a relationship between humans and artificial intelligence or technology? I have one. The Matrix. Ah. 1999 uh, masterpiece, uh, The Matrix, which is... um, uh, of course, for those who haven't seen it, a world in which, uh, you know, robots have we, we've developed robots that uh, have, have surpassed uh, human technology and are now creating a fictional world in which we live. Um, 
I think that's like a lot of the AI I see is handled kind of in this Blade Runner way or like Steven Spielberg's AI or like um, even like some parts of Terminator where it begs the question of like, what would be this machine's humanity? Like, would it mm. find a soul? And this, I think the answer is no. I mean, this is a machine. It has intelligence, but this is a machine. And it would be self-aware and self-interested as any intelligent thing is, but lacking a soul because it is a machine. So I think that it would ultimately go poorly for humanity to invest too thoroughly in AI because it could result in the thing that we see with um, something like The Matrix, where it's, it's a program that is aware of its own limitations versus its creator's intent and would try to surpass that in horrifying ways. Mm. My brother had the computer matrix screensaver and ugh, I would just like look at that thing for like hours. <laughs> it, like, moved. Yeah. it was just the, it was the falling yeah. like uh, mm -hmm. ones and zeros, yep. the green ones and zeros. Um, you brought it up and this is one of the films you watched in the class that I helped teach, but um, her, Damn it. Um, <laughs> I knew that was going to come up. I, I, I feel like besides Ex, Ex Machina, her is like one of the films in like recent years that's just like kind of like blown my mind. And you might have different reasons for talking about mm -hmm. it too, Connor. But like, um, it was interesting too because it wasn't like a physical like AI. Like it is just like this voice where it's like in a time where especially like so many people like just like live through like social media and stuff and like a lot of those interactions without like physically being with a person where it like that like step forward like seems to like really make sense especially for like that particular character and like also is like Scarlett Johansson's like I forget what her name her like name actually is in in is her. she given a name I, she, I think she might be yeah, she I think she name, like he that. like gives her a name or she like comes and up doesn't with she one pick her own name at the I end I think I think maybe yeah she invents a name at the but end. um but like it you know kind of culminates in this like really interesting relationship that they have where then like as she's like growing as just this like kind of amorphous like ai and is growing and expanding and it gets to a point where she can't be what he wants because she's expanding so further like outside of that and that's just like such a fascinating like I idea like the way that ends where it's just like I I'm like learning all these things. I'm talking to thousands of people and she's just like growing into this like mm -hmm. to this thing that he really can't like comprehend. And as like a human being kind of stuck more in this like physical body could never really like relate to either. Um, yeah, I don't know that that's just like a really interesting it's a really interesting like look into like a relationship just in general, mm -hmm. but then also adding that like AI aspect of it too. You just like summed up her perfectly. I couldn't put it anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that. Look into my eyes and tell me you don't know what Scarlett Johansson's the AI name is. Look at me and think oh, about yeah, her name. Oh yeah, Samantha. I was thinking that, and then I was like, I, yeah, look at me. I was gonna say eyes. I don't know. Look at I am the captain now. Look. I was like, was it Samantha? But then I was like, I don't know. That might be totally wrong. Yeah, that yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Um, a really memorable AI for me would be 2001 A Space Odyssey with Hal. Um, and just of how Kubrick shot just like a menacing red light behind like a small glass mm -hmm. circle. Um, and then how that movie evolves with, I, I don't really love the end of that movie, the final nut when he's kind of going through space that's and time. Great. That's great. I don't know. That's, that's fine. I understand. Yeah. That's great. But I think in, <laughs> of when they're on the spaceship, I think the production design and how they like are trying, like this robot is like, I, you guys, you humans, I'm just going to do away with you. I'm going to do whatever I want with you. 
Uh, it's a really early example, I think, mm-hmm. of like AI done very well in cinema. Mm-hmm. But mm. hers also amazing. <laughs> yeah, both really good. Yeah. I don't have a great answer. I feel like I don't have like a wealth of knowledge of movies involving AI. So I'm going to like lean back on something I know very well, which is Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Um, So there is a character in the first and second Captain America movies called um, Armin Zola. And he is this German scientist that is essentially responsible for giving Bucky Barnes the super super soldier serum and he is um recruited by shield eventually to join this operation paperclip which is like bringing in german doctors from world war ii to be like hey i know you fucking sucked but like hey yeah yeah, but like hey why don't you come and do like productive things for us and so like he was one of those doctors and he starts dying of cancer in like the 70s and so one way for him to keep living and keep running hydra is by putting his consciousness into Mm -hmm. a set of computers and so the base that Captain America was essentially formed at Camp Lehigh is um, there's a whole like locker essentially full of computers where his consciousness lives and it's like mm-hmm. super active because like Steve and Natasha they go in <laughs> weirdly Scarlett Johansson I know um they just like step up to the computer and he's like rogers come and steven and and like he knows all of that so it's still active that was a really cool scene in winter soldier and the Mm. miles of record tape of like that's like not digital it's on analog right Mm. yeah it's like a terror it's like a a good version of that terrible johnny depp movie transcendence (laughs) never saw it never saw it you're all fine (laughs) (laughs) great that's the best i got what did you think no that's great I thought you were going to pick Smart House. <gasps> oh, no! <laughs> I thought you had the look in your eye because I'm, I'm like, I, that was my pick. I'm such a fool. No, no, no. Oh, my God. How <laughs> could I not? We just watched this. Oh. Yeah, like a year ago. I know. Do you I know mean, how often I watch The Winter Soldier? <laughs> wait, how? I'm a wait, fool. how often? Like, once a week. Wow. But I mean, you means... talk about watching Turn all the time. I just. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mix. I go from. <laughs> At first, is there AI in Turn? Is this where Sam's going? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we can all agree that Smart House was an extremely forward thinking movie as far as like how reliant at the everyday. Oh, somebody's got a look on their face. Uh, uh, what movie? Is this the Disney oh, movie sorry, we talk about? To... It's because yes, Connor is a baby. It's good. It's good movie. 10 years old. He was born and then came here. <laughs> um, okay, I'm so Smart House is a Disney Just trailer original. Just crawled into Dave's room. <laughs> um, about uh, this family that has, I, I don't know, what is her name? They have like an Alexa? Is that Pat. It? Basically, Pat, yeah. Pat, right. Uh, her name's Pat. I'm sorry. Her <laughs> name's Pat. Look at my eyes. <laughs> she um, she she's like the basically the housekeeper. I mean, she like cleans the house and everything like that. But then she, uh, like the like families over rely on her, and she kind of takes a lot of over a lot of responsibilities, and things just go up in uh, kind of upheaval. <laughs> And it's just a wonderful, I think, vision of, like, like what Samantha, If Samantha instead decided to try to condense herself into, like, the quintessential 50s housewife and just, like, explode it all over the family. Take on these maternal roles and the, um, like, cleaning roles and all of these things. And it's just 
there's this scene where she's just spinning in the air and then the son is like, Pat, you can't be our mother. But uh, yeah, I think it's just, and I think she's a wonderful kindred spirit to Michael Fassbender in, um, in like Prometheus. Oh, I thought you were going to say he was in Smart House. (laughs) He plays the son in Smart House. Michael Fassbender in a Disney Channel original. I see Michael Fassbender in Prometheus Sale and Covenant as the, as Pat. I'm surprised you didn't say Prometheus. I really thought that was going to be your pick. Well, I mean, you know. Way to go. I would have probably mentioned that if, if Sam had picked smart house but I'm, gl- I'm glad that that was recognized as a as a seminal text and work <laughs> oh boy dave did you offer i did i said the matrix sacrifice yeah which uh, that being said uh i stick by my st- uh, by my statement don't invest in ai to scientists it's a bad idea oh wait you had matrix yeah i, I like how dumb my alexa is it's not very good at answering my question. The other day I was talking to Christine and I looked down at my phone and it just like typed out what yeah. I said to her and I was like, you get the fuck out of here. Yeah. yeah. All I know is that the, one of the more recent tests they had of an AI machine, two AI machines talking to each other was that they created a language that their creators couldn't yeah. understand to communicate with one another and they had to oh, shut it down. God so, damn. you know what? Bad idea. Yes. Like, why would you want that? If there's an artificial intelligence, it should be connected to a cord so you can just pull the plug. We're just a bunch of Luddites sitting around. That should be the new opening. Hi, welcome to Butter with That. We're just a bunch of Luddites sitting around talking about movies. But imagine all that brain power with none of the anxiety. Mm. I mean, if we could turn AI to write, it's like, I put 10,000 hours of Olive Garden commercials into an AI. (laughs) I mean, if we can perfect that technology. That's really all I want it to do. The world is dying. I just need something to laugh at. And if it's a dumb computer, then sure. The queer eye one is. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen all those. Yeah. There's a very good AI black metal and Beatles album that you can find. Hmm. Well, on that note, um, thanks so much uh, for a great convo. Do we have any shout outs? uh, Social media? Reminders. You're introducing Rosemary's Baby. Oh yes. Soon, right? Uh, what? in October at the Ritz Five. Yeah, thank you for reminding me. October fifteenth, I will be introducing Rosemary's Baby at the Ritz Five. Whoa. Um. Yeah. I don't know what I'm gonna say yet because Roman Polanski is, you know, a person. You can just talk about the movie. It's I'm okay. gonna focus Everyone on the ladies. That's that's really that's the what ladies. I'm gonna do. I've never seen it, so I'm excited to see it on the big it's screen. Yeah. So, so buy good. tickets and come hear me talk about Rosemary's Baby. Um. Yeah, that'll be fun. That's mm. awesome. I'm very, I'm very scared. Yeah. Oh my god, can we mm-hmm. hold up signs in the middle of the movie yeah. to say go Tory? <laughs> oh, and then next week Garrett is doing on the 22nd he's doing an intro for Nightmare on Elm Street also. So awesome. that should be fun. Yeah. Oh, that would be mm-hmm. awesome to see in theaters. Yeah. So, excellent, excellent Hang out announcement. The Ritz 5. Yeah, we'll see you all at the Ritz 5. Although they did spell my name 15th. wrong on the poster, but it's <laughs> fine. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Was it Protenza? It's Protenza. <laughs> You're just <laughs> such a pro. They just added an R and I'm just like, "Okay." She's I a pro. Italian. You got Italian like, name. I want a flyer at the Ritz. This is so cool. And then my name was spelled wrong. And I was like, I guess it's still cool. <laughs> I'm mad. <laughs> Tori Potenza. Yep. <sighs> well, um, yeah, check us out on social media and all the things. Um, we'll, we're going to see you. Uh, we're going to see you next week for Sam's movie favorite pick. It's big. Woo. Woo. It's going to reel you in, I promise. Oh, man. It's going to make quite a splash. (laughs) Oh, these are perfect. (laughs) All right.
Well, thanks, everybody. Bye. Time to die. <laughs> like tears. Ooh. Like right. tears in rain.